we're, we're going to begin a new sermon series today uh, called Seeing Jesus. And we're going to preach several messages, I think, in this sermon series. Uh, but I want to start in a particular place. And I've actually, you know, I think maybe a year or two ago, I preached something uh, very similar to this. But you all probably won't remember, so it'll work out for us again. And then, but we're going to preach out of, out of 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 16. And we'll read that and we'll get started. So it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time. The spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Let's pray together. So, Father, we just, we just come to you this morning, God, we're thankful for your word. And, Lord, we believe that every time that we encounter your word, Holy Spirit, you breathe life on it, and it changes who we are. And so that's what we ask for this morning. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, to see and understand what you're trying to say to us through your word, God, and that you would use it to change us. We ask you to do it in our hearts and in our minds, Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk to you this morning about a revelation of Jesus. And, and specifically, this sermon series is going to be about seeing Jesus. And the reason for that is, is you know, the thing is, is in church, a lot of times we, we, we start preaching different things. And as long as we're preaching from Scripture, we're doing a good job, I believe. But it's important that even when you're reading Scripture, you understand that the entire point of Scripture is to point us to one person. And that's Jesus Christ. And we can know all kinds of principles. We can even know how to go to church and do, do good church programs and, and take care of things in church and say the right church things. But if we are not seeing Jesus clearly in our lives, we're missing the entire point. Jesus is the reason for all life. He is the center of all things. He has preeminence over all things. And he is the very reason that we have a Christian life. We are Christians. We are Christ followers. And Jesus is what matters most. He is the center of all things and he is the point of all things and we are always in my opinion in 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 need of a fresh revelation of Jesus amen because sometimes he gets lost in context he gets lost in culture and like I said we we preach for a long time and we talk about good behavior and we talk about loving and we talk about doing all kinds of these things but to be a Christian first and foremost means to worship the one true God who is revealed perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ 
And good behavior flows out of knowing Jesus. That's what it's all about. So, see, because even atheists can be good people. Do you agree with that? I mean, in, 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 a, in a standard worldly sense, now we know that the Scripture says that the, there is none that are good. And so from a biblical sense before God, nobody is good apart from Jesus Christ. We know that, but we can look at humanity and say, well, you know, there's all kinds of good people in the world according to our own standards. But Christianity is not just about being good. It is about knowing Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, whom you were made for and designed for, and ultimately he will be your eternal destiny. Without knowing him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good or bad any of us are because life is about knowing Jesus Christ. So one of the things that I first started praying when I became a Christian, and I got I to tell you, when I first became a Christian, uh, growing up I would have always said I was a Christian, but I wasn't. And the truth of the matter was, is that I knew about Christianity. I went to church, but I did not know Jesus. I simply knew about church. And so, and so I said, well, I'm a Christian, but I can remember when my life dramatically changed, when I was set free from a lot of the things of my past and from a lot of my behaviors that were, that were just binding me up. It was because I had a revelation of Jesus Christ. God revealed to me. Jesus came and revealed himself to me by the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, everything made sense when I saw him, when my eyes were open, when my spiritual eyes were open to see him. And what I noticed is that even in Ephesians, there's a, there's a crazy prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. And if you read through the scriptures, Paul puts some prayers up that honestly, when I read some of his prayers, I'm like, Paul, I don't even know what, I don't even, that don't even make sense. I don't even know what this prayer means. And I remember reading this years ago, and he, and he said, For this reason I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Man, that sounds deep, doesn't it? It's, it's beautiful, though, isn't it? He says, I, I want you to pray... And he's praying this to Christians. He's saying, I want, I'm praying that the Lord would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this word revelation is a very cool word because it's actually the word that we get apocalypse from. When you read, in, when you read the book of Revelation in the, in the New Testament, the very last book of the Bible, it's a crazy book where, where people get scared all the time. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word revelation in the Greek is the word we get apocalypse from. That's why when you hear about apocalypse, you think it means the end of the world. But the word apocalypse literally means to take off the veil. It means that you've been blindfolded and that word means to take that blindfold off so that you can see what you've never seen before. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you, that, and I want you to pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that all of a sudden this blindfold would be removed from your eyes. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the scripture also says that Satan seeks to blind those who are not saved, who are perishing, and he looks to blind them. He, he, and, and the word literally is to put a veil over their eyes. To put a veil over their eyes so that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. They cannot see the truth of Jesus Christ. And he's praying, man, we need a revelation of Jesus Christ because that's how our life begins and that's how it continues. And the, the first point in your notes there is that as our, our Christian life begins and continues with a revelation of Jesus. Our Christian life begins and it continues with a revelation of Jesus. You can't simply say, well, I know Jesus. I got a revelation of him. I, I understood that he died for me on the cross. I got saved 20 years ago and now I'm good. I don't have any greater revelation. We are to continue growing in a greater revelation of Jesus and seeing new parts, new aspects of his nature, new aspects of his character every day of our lives. And see, when he's the object of our worship, he's the one that we focus on. And we're praying, Lord, I want to know Jesus more above all things. 
Above everything else in my life, what I want is to know Jesus more. And see, our life, many of us, I, I believe we burn out as Christians because we get focused on the doing rather than the being. We get so focused on doing for God and, 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 and ch- checking off our checklist, man, and going to church and doing a program and, and, and volunteering and, and doing all these things. And we think that those things are what is pleasing to God. The thing that is most pleasing to God is when you come to him in a relationship and he knows that that's what you want more than anything. Because when you want a relationship with Jesus and you know Jesus and you're allowing him to know you on an intimate level, all of the activity will flow from that. Problem is, is we stop seeking to know Jesus and we start trying to produce activity. And guess what happens? We burn out. Church gets boring. It gets dull. It gets pointless. And you're thinking, man, this doesn't even work anymore. And then all of a sudden you turn back to old habits and behaviors. You find yourself getting frustrated. And the truth is, it's because you need a new and a fresh revelation of Jesus and knowing him and coming into the knowledge of him. And he is everything. And here's what I believe more than anything is that no matter where you are at in life, you may be struggling with a, with a, with a sin or some sort of behavior or an addiction still. You may be struggling with your future. You may be struggling with your marriage. And a lot of times people say, well, I need practical answers. Clay, give me practical answers. And I still believe that Jesus is the answer. And they say, well, that's not practical. You need to get, you need, I need some practical steps and answers. And my point is, yes, we can give you practical steps and we can say, Hey, put this in practice, put this in practice. But I'm telling you right now, you can put a hundred million steps into practice. And if you don't know Jesus and are not hearing from him on a personal level, all those practical steps mean nothing. There are many programs in the world. There are many programs in church. We have programs that we can put people in when they're suffering from addiction and we can run them through those programs and God will use those programs in a beautiful way. But just like Donald says all the time, God will not be used by those programs. And every program that we do in church or every program that seeks to set somebody free from addiction, I'm telling you, if that program does not ultimately point people to Jesus, it's all a waste of time. Everything we do in church, our small groups, our ladies' nights, meetings, whatever they are, all of those things have to be pointing to Jesus and a relationship with Him because if they are any other thing, then they're just a program. And what ends up happening is even when you're struggling with something like addiction or whatever, you know, we, we can learn, we learn, we teach coping mechanisms, we teach all of these things. But let me tell you what ultimately sets somebody free. That is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said, if you continue in my word, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Knowing Jesus is what brings freedom in people's lives. And sometimes you can come to people that are truly free and, and you can ask them, man, what did you do? What did you do? And you'll find a hundred different people that know Jesus and they all did something different. But there's one common denominator. They know Jesus. They have a personal relationship with him. He's been revealed to them in a real way. It's not just a practical step because Jesus will lead us to him and God will lead us into himself in many different ways and many different routes. But ultimately, it's not about religion. It's not just about following God, guidelines or trying to be a better person, but it's about knowing Jesus. Now, in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, I'm going to go through this verse by verse, but notice what it says. We'll read through some of these again. It says, of this salvation, and that's what I want to talk about this morning a little bit in, in seeing Jesus, is, is really our salvation, okay? And he says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace That would come to you. Now, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, if you read the Old Testament, you can read Obadiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. You can read all of the prophets. 
And all of the prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus, they begin to get a glimpse into the future. And they saw this grace that was going to be coming to you. And they saw how abundant it was. They saw how awesome it was. And literally, they got so caught up in it that hundreds of years before they even were going, they, they were going to die before they got to experience it. But they got captured by it. They prophesied about it. They talked about it. Their one hope and desire was that this Messiah would come because when he came, there was going to be grace that followed. There was going to be this abundance, this salvation, this, this transformation that followed. And they talked about it. And, and they, they talked about this grace that would come to us. Isaiah, if, if you guys are familiar with the book of Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 53, we know that Isaiah, some 600 years before Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah saw into the future and saw that on the cross. He saw that in Isaiah 53 that he would be wounded for our tra transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be, be upon him and by his stripes we would be healed. And then in Isaiah 54, he talks about how because of Jesus' death, no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper, right? That, that we would be established in righteousness, that our children would now be taught of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross for us. He says, no longer will you be afraid. No longer will you experience shame because he saw what was going to happen on the cross. And see, grace, grace defined. People say, well, what is grace? Because you hear that word a lot here lately. And grace defined is really favor that you cannot earn. It's the blessing, it's the favor of God that you cannot earn. It's freely given to you. But see, it's, it's, it's even much, much, much more than just that. And, and in our world today, I, I believe that the devil wants us to live under a small revelation of God. A small revelation of the grace of God specifically. He, he doesn't want us to know what this grace of God is. He doesn't wanna, uh, want us to understand what the grace of God is. And even in today's world, when you, when, when you talk about grace, I feel like sometimes people get misconceptions about what grace is. For example, I think a lot of people, first, they believe that, they believe that grace is a license to live a defeated life. Because a lot of times I'll hear people talk about their struggles. And, let me, and don't get me wrong. Every single one of us, we have struggles, don't we? We do. That's, that's just a reality. We have struggles and we need the grace of God. But a lot of times what I feel like people are talking about the grace of God in is that they have struggles. And, but we thank God for his grace. I'm never really going to change. I'm always going to have this struggle. And so we just thank God for his grace because I'm always going to have this struggle. Grace is not a license to live a defeated life. Matter of fact, grace is what empowers you to live a victorious life. Amen. But secondly, here's the other thing is that in, in Jude verse four, he actually talks about teachers that would start to preach this, this kind of grace. You put that verse up, Jude four. It says for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. He said they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of the grace of our God, God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. So he said, look, you're actually even going to get teachers that come into the church and among you. And he said, when they talk about grace, they're actually going to use it as a means to say that, well, now you got license to sin. Jesus died for you on the cross. He's paid for all your sins. You're forgiven. You can just continue to do what you want to. It doesn't matter. And people will actually teach that and, and believe that. But the truth is, and, and, and here's what happens, is because people believe that about grace, here especially in southeastern Kentucky, we, we people that are, you know, maybe lean on the holiness end, we go to the opposite side. Rather than teaching license to sin, we'll go into hardcore legalism. 
Amen. And and to to try to to try to defend against this. And then we'll get up and we'll act like grace is not even a good thing. And we shouldn't even be preaching grace because you'll you'll, because if you preach grace, well, then you'll just let, let people get out and sin. Let me tell you something. People are out sinning anyway. The reality is, is that they need to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ and understand that God is gracious to them and that through Jesus Christ, grace and truth came. And He is gracious. He's full of grace and truth. And His grace abounds to us. But that grace that He brings is transformational. And you could not earn it. You could not do one thing to earn this. But this is God looking at you in your sin, in your struggle, in your ungodliness, and saying, I love you so much. I know that you've not done anything to deserve this, but I'm going to give you the gift of myself in the midst of your struggle. And I'm going to empower you and lift you out of that right now. That's what grace is. That's what grace is. That's how grace is defined. And I, I love, I love the scriptures when they talk about grace. In, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. Right? It has appeared to everybody. In the New King James or King James, it says man, but it really means humanity. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all humanity. And what does this grace do? It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. He's saying the grace of God actually teaches you how to live a sober, godly, and righteous life in this present world. And it's not something that that comes from the outside of you that is trying to place a demand upon your life that you don't have the power to do. When you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, He fills you with this grace and you find something from the inside teaching you how to live a different way. It's an empowerment from within, grace is. And this is why the Bible says in Romans 6, 14, he says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, what we actually believe is that we sh- if we could put more laws on people, it would cause them to sin less. And, and, and the scripture is actually saying that's the opposite is true, that when you put more laws on people, it actually makes them sin more. It, and that, that's what scripture teaches. I know that's crazy. It's hard for people to believe. But he's saying the law is something that comes from the outside that tries to restrict you, but it's not about external change of behavior. It's about inward transformation. And grace seeks to not put rules on the outside of you that you can't perform. Grace seeks to transform you from the inside so that you desire to keep the rules. The law is now written in your heart. The law is now written in your mind. And there's a transformation. Why? Because you've got a relationship with Jesus and he's filling you with his grace. Romans 5, 21, I love this verse too. It says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. In, in, another, in one verse it says, see, it says where the law entered, that the, that the offense might abound. He said, look, the law came in actually so that everybody would realize that they were sinners. Because when you tell me, hey, hey don't, don't do this, and then I find myself doing it, I realize what? Man, I messed up. I need some help. I need a Savior. And then all of a sudden I turn to God in that point because I realize I messed up. And where my sin abounded the most, and, and the, if you read that in the Greek language, the word uh, abounded for sin, it just means it increased. But here for grace abounded much more, it is a word that means hyper, super abounded. He's saying wherever your sin was really bad, wherever it was at its worst, and it looked like it was really, really bad, he said that grace pointed out that spot and just begin to overwhelm it like a rushing water, like a wave. He says that matter of fact, grace is going to abound in your life at your weakest point. Where you have struggled the worst and where your sin has been the deepest 
and where your bondages have been the tightest and where you have struggled in your mind the most, that is where God's grace will abound the most. Where sin abounded in your life, God's grace will much, much more abound in that area. Some people will say, well, I just always have this weakness. And God is saying, no, it's actually in your weaknesses that my strength is made perfect. And I want to look for your weaknesses. And that place where you're struggling the most right now is actually where you will find the greatest victory in your life. If you will learn to rely on me, I will give you the victory in that area. And you'll find my strength to be faithful in those moments in your life. Romans 5, 17. I like this verse maybe the most. It says, for if by the one man's offense... Death reigned through the one. So he's saying when Adam sinned, it caused death to reign over all of us. And we experience that death, don't we? And we're not just talking about physically dying and ceasing to breathe. Death is something that means when you are separated from God, you begin to be corrupted on every single level. Physically, you're corrupted. Mentally, you're corrupted. In your character and in your morality, you're corrupted. This is what death is. And ultimately, it does mean that your body physically dies. But he says, death began to reign all over all creation because of the one man's offense. But he says, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this because this is an important verse. He says, look, death has been reigning all over everybody. Like I said, it's, it's sin, it's sickness, it's disease, it's hatred, it's anger, it's, it's lust, it's all of these things. And ultimately, it means that we die physically. He says, that's been raining. He says, but much more now, because of what Jesus has done, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but who, who would like to reign in life? I mean, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? I don't, sometimes I don't really feel like I'm reigning. Uh, I don't know about you. But this word means for a king to come into rule and have dominion. Now, when you were created on this earth, you were designed in the image of God to rule and to have dominion. And when we think about ruling and having dominion, we always think about it in a negative sense because most of our world leaders throughout history have abused their rule and their authority. But when you rule from God's position, you never abuse your authority. When, because Jesus ruled the entire world, but what did he do? He came in humility and died on the cross for sinners. He was ruling as king when he did it. Matter of fact, when he died on the cross, I don't know if you understand it or not, but that was his coronation as king. With the crown on his heads, they bowed down and called him the king of the Jews. That was his coronation as king. And he was demonstrating that when you rule and reign in this earth, you rule and reign from a place of humility. But when you rule and reign on this earth, what did Jesus demonstrate? You have all power and authority over every demonic torment that comes into this world. You have power and authority over every sickness and disease. He says, and he's looking to bring restoration on earth as it is in heaven. And that will not come until Jesus comes back. But he's saying right now in this moment, there's an already not yet. That in this moment, you can begin to receive this grace that will cause you to get foretastes of reigning on this earth. And when Jesus comes back, he will fulfill it and it will be finished. And then you will rule and reign with him forever. But here's how, if you're going to start stepping into your position where you're going to reign with Christ forever and ever here and now, if you're going to start that, the first thing you got to do, it says, is you have to receive an abundance of grace. Somebody said, well, I thought grace just came to you and it just landed on you and there wasn't nothing you could do about it. No. And that's how, some people teach that, but here in the scripture, this word receive you know, I actually, I took some Greek and sometimes, you know, I, I probably teach it too much, but, but there are three words for the word receive in the Greek language. Okay. There are three words and I ain't going to tell them to you because they're crazy. One of them is called haromai. That's a scary word, but there's a word that is, that means that you're passive and you receive it passively. And so in other words, I just come up to you 
and I just throw this bottle in your lap. You ain't got no choice. It's on, it's, it's on you now. I dropped it on you. You have this bottle. It's now in your possession. Why? Because I gave it to you and you didn't have no other choice. There is another word for receive, which means you come up and you violently seize it and take it by force. And, 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 that's, and, and, and you, you just take it. But this word here is one right in between, okay? And it means that this thing has been offered to you, but you must be an active participant in receiving it and taking it as your own. Matter of fact, if you look in the dictionary at this word, the, the NAS Greek dictionary, it says to accept with initiative and the emphasis is on the volition and assertiveness of the receiver because they actively lay hold of it. And so in other words, Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross and he has made a payment for your salvation and multiple aspects of that salvation playing out in your life. But it will not happen by you sitting with your hands folded because he will not force you to take it. And neither can you come by force and take from him what is freely offered. He freely offers it, but you must participate with it to receive it. And here's the other thing. Some people say, well, you know, we don't have any free will to take that. Let me tell you something. You don't have any free will apart from the grace of God empowering you to receive that. You don't. He has to empower you to receive this thing. But still, he does not override your will in the decision. Okay? So you have to learn to participate because salvation is ultimately about participation. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute. But when we talk about grace... Man, especially because, because of what Peter's saying. He's saying these prophets, these Old Testament dudes, he said they knew about grace. They knew about favor because they read about it in the Old Testament and they saw it differently. For example, in, in, in the book of Genesis, Joseph, for example, it says that he found grace and favor in the eyes of Potiphar. He found grace and favor in the eyes of, of, of the prison keeper. And, and they saw this grace on his life. Matter of fact, the scripture says that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, sometimes when we think about grace, it just means that we, we think that in today's culture, especially that grace means that I get to live my best life now and I'm going to prosper and have plenty of money and all these different things like that. And sometimes God will bless us in those ways, but that's not ultimately what grace is for. Grace is given to restore you to your original design in Christ. It's not given for you to live the American dream, even though sometimes because of grace, you might do things so well that you do prosper. Right? But that's not the goal of grace. Matter of fact, there, most of the early church were flowing in an abundance of grace and most of them got killed and had everything taken from them. So grace doesn't mean that life is going to go perfectly. Matter of fact, the early church, I was reading a book the other day that talked about how the early church were, were settled in their hearts that they weren't going to be happy, but they were joyful in Christ. There's a big difference, isn't there? There's a big difference between being happy and being joyful in Christ. They had settled in their hearts that as far as this world goes, they were never going to have nice possessions. Their families were going to continue to be killed. They were never going to be happy, but they would be joyful in Christ. Why? Because they had the grace of God flowing through their lives. Amen? So Joseph, he was, he was sold into slavery, man. That doesn't feel like grace. He went to prison, uh, uh, wrongfully accused of adultery and and, and he goes to prison. That doesn't sound like grace, but he, saw, but he found grace when he was in the prison and he found grace with everybody that he was with. And ultimately what it led to was his, was his departure and him getting freed from the prison to be set up in second command in Egypt. Why? Because many people were going to die and he was set up in a position where many people would be saved. The grace of God will empower you to come into a position where many people will be saved. 
Same thing happens in the book of Esther. It says in chapter 2, verse 15, that Esther found grace and favor in the sight of everyone that was, that was beholding her. And she won a beauty contest because of this grace and favor. But she won it in a time, not so she could just become queen and everybody, and she would become popular and famous and she'd be on TV and stuff. It wasn't any of that. But the grace and favor was there because there was a man that was trying to exterminate the Jewish people. And it gave her such favor with the king that she went into him and said, listen, I, I, need, I need, she called a three day fast and they prayed and she went into him and she told him what was happening and she saved all of Israel from being exterminated. In the, in the book of Genesis, once again, Noah, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in the time when all the thoughts of men were only evil continually, the scripture says. In an evil time, he found grace and God told him to build an ark because judgment was coming. And what happened? Because of the grace of God, he was able to he, he, he preach righteousness to people in a time of wickedness. And he was able to be saved with him and his family because of the judgment that was coming upon the earth during that time. So grace is important to have. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, look, we caught glimpses of grace in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we're prophesying about a time, and that time is now when grace would overflow and it would never end. It wouldn't just come and go like it did with Esther or Noah, but it would, come, it would flow and it would never end. And here's the second point in your notes, and that is that our Christian life is a journey of grace. Our Christian life is a journey of grace. Now, I'm going to give you a little, little bit of uh, some teaching here. Y'all ready for this? Put, the, put this slide up here. So this is, I made this. That's why it's, it's, it looks so awesome, right? So there's a dude named John Wesley. He lived back in the 1700s. As a matter of fact, they say that he started what was called the holiness movement. And trust me, that was nothing like what you would consider holiness today. Used to, holiness actually had a good name. Today, it does sometimes. Uh, but the truth is, is that holiness is an amazing thing. And he taught holiness the way that it should be taught, in my personal opinion. And here's what he said. He said that salvation is a journey of grace. It's not what he said definitely was. It's not something that you just say, well, I got saved 10 years ago. He's saying, no, salvation is something that did happen to you, but it is happening to you and it will happen to you. He says it never stops happening. It's something that's ongoing. And so here's what he said. He said that just like we read in Titus, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to everyone. So on some level, here's, and this is why you need to pray and intercede for the lost, because on some level what Jesus has done has released an abundance of grace worldwide. It's released worldwide. And it's out and, and revealed to many people in many different forms. And he said there's a prevenient grace. And he says man cannot choose God of their own will. But he says what happens is because of what Jesus did on the cross, that grace of God is drawing men to him. And then God uses the church and he uses the word of God and the Holy Spirit draws people to him so that they would come to a place where now because that prevenient grace of God is working in them, they can respond in faith. Amen. And so when they respond in faith, they are justified. They experience justifying grace. Now, this is the salvation that pretty much everybody talks about because you just get saved. You're forgiven from sin. To be justified means that you're declared righteous. It's just as if you never sinned. And man, this is really good part of it because when you are justified before God, guess what? You are so cleansed by the blood of Jesus that before you even do anything good, you stand before God putting your faith in Christ alone. The only way you can be justified is by nothing you do, but only by believing in Jesus. And that's good news. Amen. It's only by believing in Jesus. I can do nothing to earn this salvation. And so when I come in, 
I put my faith in Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, I'm justified. And guess what? I'm set free. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. But guess what? That's just the beginning of my Christian life. And as soon as I start into this journey of grace, there is sanctifying grace that comes into my life. And sanctification means that you are being set apart. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is a lifelong journey. And in that process that many of us in, if we are Christians, right now, we were saved from the penalty of sin. Right now, we're being saved from the power of sin. Amen? Y'all need that, don't you? It's not enough that I just wake up today and say, well, you know, thank God I got saved 15 years ago, boys, because I'm going to sin some today. No, I get up today and what, what John Wesley taught was that there was a means of grace and I want to live an overcoming life. I want to defeat sin. Matter of fact, the Bible says that I am dead to sin and I should live in victory over sin. Doesn't mean that I live a perfect, flawless life. We will all fail. We will all have shortcomings. We still have struggles. We still do. But he says that we are to seek sanctification and grow in this salvation to be set free from the power of sin. And he said that happens by the means of grace. And the means of grace are activities such as prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. You've already been saved, haven't you? But now salvation is working in you. And he says, through prayer, through worship, through meeting together like we are this Sunday morning, through getting in the scripture and studying the word, through fasting, through seeking the Lord in these ways. He said, these are means of grace by which this abundance of grace, what are you doing? You're receiving it. Man, I'm receiving it. Every time I pray, every time I open the word and get into God's word, every time I come in here corporately to worship and every time I pray for another brother or sister, when we go down to the homeless shelter and we look in the faces of people who need Jesus just as much as we do, we are receiving an abundance of grace. And it's transforming us. It's changing us. It's making us look more like Jesus. And ultimately, we will continue on that journey until we experience glorifying grace when we see Jesus face to face and the whole goal will be ended and completed and we will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. Now, that's a good sounding journey to me. Amen. And this is, the, this is the journey that he wants to bring us on and our life is a journey of grace. Now, if you go 1 Peter 1.11, it says, Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So he's saying the Spirit of God was talking to them about Jesus suffering on the cross and the glories that follow. Let me tell you something. We are in the glories that follow. Amen. We live in that time when we can be filled with the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That we can experience transformation. We can experience love in our lives. We can experience the power of God working in our lives. And some people say, well, you know, Clay, if this is real and you're saying all this stuff, how come we haven't seen more? How come we haven't seen more of these glories that follow? How come my life still feels like I'm defeated and all this? You know, Hosea 4, 6 says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. God wants you to live a victorious life like you've never believed before. He wants to do miracles through you. I believe it with all my heart. He wants to see your... Families transformed and through all of us, he wants to see our communities transformed. And listen, there are many things that people are struggling with and, and we lose battles. But I'm telling you, when you choose to put Jesus first and you start to seek out a greater understanding of him, you understand who you are in Christ. You begin to pray along those lines. You start to get a glimpse of those glories that are following 
You see a breakthrough. Why? Because now you're coming into a knowledge. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Just because you're his doesn't mean that you're not in a war zone facing the devil every day trying to keep you blinded from the greater realities that there are in Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, we have a victory in him that if we can pursue as a body, as a church, we will see God do amazing things in our midst. You agree with that? So he says, look, you got it. it's about these, these glories that follow. And, and see, faith accesses and experiences what revelation sees. And I'm telling you, you pray for that, that, that spirit that, that, that of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And when I'm seeking scripture, I'm saying, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to something I've never seen before. And when I read this, don't just let it be like head knowledge. Because when we talk about knowledge, we're not using it usually the same way that they used it in the Bible, in Bible times. Because when they talked about knowledge, to know someone, it's like this. He said, Adam knew Eve. It was intimate. Knowledge is not just, I know about you in my head. See, I don't just say, somebody, somebody said, well, do, do you know, do you know so-and-so? Well, yeah, I mean, I know about him. We're not talking about knowing about him. We're talking about knowing him. I know Donald. He and I have conversations. I know things about him that nobody else knows about him, right? We have an intimate relationship. God is saying, that's the kind of knowing, that's the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowing me. They don't know me. They don't know what I have to offer. They have forgotten my benefits. They don't understand these things. Verse 12, it says, to them it was revealed... That not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So he's saying, look, all these glories that are following, he said, they realized back in their day, back in the Old Testament when they were writing this stuff down, they realized, man, we're not even writing this for us. We're writing this for people that are going to be at City of Hope Church in 2019 and and somebody is going to, through the Holy Spirit, stand up and preach and he's going to preach about these glories that would follow because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and he said they're going to actually believe in it and come into the fullness of what we're prophesying about. That's unreal. And I, I, I guarantee you, the Bible says that, you know, seeing we're surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses. I bet Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of them dudes are down there looking down on us in some sense saying, man, I hope that they get a revelation of this. In these last days, man, I pray that they actually get beyond dead religion and get a hold of Jesus and start to realize what he actually purchased and paid for them to have. Because they have a power and an anointing and a an calling to change the world in their generation. And it doesn't matter how many of them's in the building on Sunday morning right now. It matters whether or not one or two or three will begin to seek God and get a full revelation of Jesus and what he's done for them. Because when that starts to happen, I'm telling you, folks, when that starts to happen, he says, when that really begins to happen in us, things will change. There's no doubt in my mind. We believe in God. We believe that he's capable of doing more than we've ever dreamed of. And in, ver- and in that same verse, he says, look, he says, they're preaching this gospel, this good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I love that. So literally, even in here this morning, I guarantee you that if you could open and peel back the veil and have a revelation of the spiritual realm, there are angels in our midst. Why? Because they're looking to learn more about God through you and I. That's, that's amazing to me as well. And so put, put up that, the Ark of the Covenant. When I, when I think about angels desiring to look into it, I get this picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, this was the most prized possession of Israel. It represented the presence of God. It represented Jesus. And on the top of it, now, on the outside, it just looks like a, like a box. Now, like I said, it represents Jesus. And this box is wood 
plated in gold. Wood stands for humanity. Gold stands for divinity because Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God. Right? Represents him. Wood plated in gold. Now on the top, you see these angels, these cherubim. What are they doing? They're, they're looking into something. You see that. Now what they are looking at specifically, they desire looking at this. What they're looking at specifically is they're looking at something called the mercy seat. Now I want you to understand this. This is, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. And only once a year could the high priest go into where this was and he would sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat and it would atone for the sins of Israel for one year. And he could go in there once every year. And that's the only time that he could go into this place. And he would atone for the sins of Israel and put the blood on the mercy seat. Now under this mercy seat, if you were to lift the box up, there were three things in, in, under this, in, in, the, in this box. And the first thing that was in this box was the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. Now, if you remember, Moses received the tablets, the, 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 uh, the commandments, um, uh, and, and the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them. And when he came down the mountain after receiving them, already, guess what had happened? The people had rebelled. They were partying. They were worshiping a golden calf. It symbolizes Israel's rebellion against the Ten Commandments. And then the second thing that was in there was Aaron's rod that budded. Now, all of the people, once again, what did they do? They rebelled against authority and leadership. And, and God, they, they, these guys were hating on Moses. They were hating on Aaron. They said, you guys take too much upon yourself. And God said, well, Aaron, have them all put their sticks, their rods out here. And whichever one buds, that's my chosen delegated leadership and authority. And Aaron's rod budded. He said, put that in there as a, as a memory of how they rebelled against my authority. And then finally, he said, put in there a bowl of manna. And the bowl of manna represented the fact that they, they thought, man, God's not providing for us out here in this wilderness. He's got nothing for us. He's not providing for us. And, and we're hungry and we loathe this manna. We hate this manna. And manna was the food that God rained down from heaven every day to provide for them. And they loathed it. They hated it. They rejected God. They tested him in the wilderness. God said, put that in there. He said, so put these three things in here that represent my people's rebellion against me and put it in there and hide it and then shed the blood over top of it. In other words, Jesus Christ, who that represents, took all of my rebellion, all of your rebellion, all of our weaknesses, every sin that we ever committed, and took them in Himself, and on the cross, His blood was shed. And guess what? Angels desire to look into this, because when they see and understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, that God has chosen to wash you and I, who are sinful, who rebelled against Him, who are broken, who poison our bodies with all kinds of deadly things, who do all these things, and angels who are faster than you, who are mightier than you who are stronger than you are amazed at the fact that God has chosen to save us and live on the inside of us by his Holy Spirit they sit there and they desire to look into it they're amazed by it they're amazed by this salvation that Jesus Christ offers us they desire to look into this this Ark of the Covenant was such a it represents like I said the presence of Jesus and it was such a, such a main factor in the life of Israel that even one time it, it was out of Jerusalem and, and one guy, this, name, this guy named Uzzah, he tried to, they tried to carry it on ox carts. But guess what? The presence of Jesus was never designed to be carried on anything except priests. Never designed to be carried on anything except true worshipers of God. They said, well, let's put it on an ox cart. And then it started to fall and a dude touched it and because it was out of line, that guy died. And David said, well, boys, don't bring that home. Take it over and put it in Obed-Edom's yard. So they put it over in Obed-Edom's yard and for three months, Obed-Edom began to prosper so much 
because this presence was in his yard and in his home, he began to prosper so much that they come back to David and said, man, Obed-Edom is living it up over there. Things are going well for Obed-Edom. David said, we got to get that ark back. So he comes back and gets the ark back, brings it back to Jerusalem. David starts dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And what happens? Obed-Edom, what you find out in Jewish history is that Obed-Edom, once that had let land, listen, he was prosperous. He was a farmer. He had a family. He had stuff. He had belongings. He, was, he had a good business. He had all those things. But when they took the presence away from him, you know what he did? He left his home. He left everything. And he went to be a gatekeeper in the house of God. That's unbelievable. But what did he do? He got a taste of Jesus. And he said, man, I'm willing to give up anything. I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's a job or I'll do anything I can to be in that presence. And he said, I don't even have to go into where it's at. I'll be a gatekeeper near the thing. I'll watch the daggone gates. And it's about the presence of Jesus. There is nothing, nothing. You remember when Mary and Martha, Martha comes in and she's serving and taking care of all these things and doing all this stuff. And she gets frustrated because when you live like that, you'll end up getting frustrated. And Mary is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus. And and Martha says, don't you get, get Mary to do something in here, Jesus. I need some help. And Jesus says, she's chosen the one thing that's needful. The one thing that is needful in your life is for you to sit at the feet of Jesus, to receive from him, to see him, to know him. And everything else that you have need of in life is going to flow from that. You need the presence of Jesus more than you need your next breath. And that's what he's trying to point out to you. He says, this is, this is really, this is about everything. And he said, angels, it's such a beautiful thing that angels desire to look into this. Number three in your notes, it says, transformative, empowering grace is being brought to you in each revelation of Jesus. Now, in verse 13, and I want to read this from the Young's Living Translation. It says, uh, it says, Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope perfectly upon the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I will say this. I believe that, that Peter probably, uh, maybe even the primary interpretation of this should be our understanding of the fact that he's saying, I need you because they were dealing with intense persecution. They weren't like you and I, they were dying. They were being put to death and he was writing to them and saying, put your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. I believe that with all my heart, but I believe there's a double meaning here. Kind of like salvation is, is a journey because the actual reading, and this is an accurate translation is he says that the grace of God that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ and being brought is, is passive present. It means that right now it's being brought to you by someone else. And he's saying, I want you to put your hope perfectly in this grace that is coming to you as you're getting a greater revelation of Jesus. My point being is that even while you're listening here this morning and you're catching a glimpse of the love of Jesus for you and you're ca- catching a glimpse of his character, you know what's happening? As you're, 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 he's being revealed to you, grace is being released to you. And it's coming to you. Transformative, empowering grace comes to you more and more with each and every revelation of Jesus you get. And let me tell you something, you will never know him in all of his fullness on this earth. Matter of fact, the Bible says we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see in part. And, and what we're seeing in part is just, just a dim reflection of who Jesus really is. But every time you get a greater revelation of him, grace is being delivered to you, it's being brought to you. And so that's what we, that's what we as a people should focus on more than anything. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. 
Now, I like this because your loins are, are your procreative region, right? If they're going to gird up their loins, they're going to gird up their skirts because men wore skirts back then, long ones. Amen. Um, so he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. It's your procreative region, literally what you reproduce. And he's saying that in your mind, what you think, the thoughts you think, you're going to reproduce them. Amen. And he's saying, so with this in mind, understanding what's going on, this salvation that, that, that God has paid for you to have, this salvation that's in Christ, he's saying you need to gird up the loins of your mind because your thoughts are going to reproduce things in your life. And if you're thinking negatively about every situation that you have, if you go through a difficult time and it begins to dominate your mind and the only thoughts that you think are negative, you need to get in the Word of God and get a revelation of Jesus. If you say, well, I've been dealing with sickness, you need to read about all the times that Jesus ministered to those who were sick in the Gospels. You say, well, I'm dealing with death and loss. You need to read about how Jesus ministered Minister to those who were in death and loss. You need to read about what he said to them in those moments. And when you catch a glimpse of Jesus in those moments, then all of a sudden, guess what? Things are going to be changed. Your mind is going to be changed and you're going to reproduce those thoughts and grace is going to abound to you. That's why you got to be, you got to be careful with what you're thinking about, what you are focusing on. And he says, then you got to be sober. And to be sober is to be calm. It means to be collected in spirit and don't let your thoughts go wild thinking the worst about every situation that's going on in your life. It's easy done, isn't it? Anytime one negative thing happens, man, a lot of times we just lose our cool. And our mind immediately goes down a trail a thousand miles an hour of worst case scenarios. I used to tell the joke all the time about how I could literally go drive down the road, uh, you know, where there, were, where there was no danger whatsoever. And, and my wife would know I was there, but if I took a little bit too long, she'd say, well, I had you over a cliff. And I said, well, there ain't no cliffs anywhere around here. But see, your mind can easily go to worst case scenario, can it? It can easily go there. And he's saying, don't allow it. To, you got to be sober. You got to gird up the loins of your mind and hope perfectly upon this grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, just like I said, when you start to get in the scripture, and there, look, there's going to be nothing. Some of my guys in small group, man, they, they just really have been digging in the Bible in a way that they never have before. And it's changing their life. It's opening their mind up to new things that they've never seen. But I'm telling you, I challenge you to, to read through the New Testament. And as you do, ask the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, I want to see Jesus more. I want to I get an image of him in my mind. I want to see, I want to picture him in the situations I'm dealing with in life and see how he would, he would take care of those situations. Because even Jesus, what you'll notice is, every time he did a miracle, it was often followed by a new revelation of himself. For example, when he comes and, and, and raises up Lazarus, when he comes to Martha and Mary and he raises up their brother Lazarus from the dead, he responds to them and reveals himself as what? Behold, I'm the resurrection and the life. People are starving. They're hungry. They're out in the field. He multiplies bread and loaves and fishes and he feeds them all. And then they come after him. What does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. A new revelation, a fresh revelation. Uh, there's a blind man that he ministers to and he opens his eyes and he sees and there's a bunch of arguing going back and forth and he says to everybody, look, I am the light of the world. And see, there's a new revelation for every circumstance of life that you're in. And I'm telling you, the difficulty that you're facing right now, I am not saying that God caused that difficulty, but I am saying that he is sovereign and he will turn that difficulty and that challenge ultimately to reveal himself to you in a greater way so that it transforms your life, makes you better, and brings you into a position where you can receive from him on a greater level. He's going to do those things in your life. Every time Jesus did a miracle, there was a fresh unveiling. And that's what we need. Verse 14. 
Now, if you notice at the end of verse 13, it has a semicolon, and then it goes into verse 14, which says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Y'all can come to the music right now if you want. So it says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. So the way that you are an obedient child in this context is by setting your hope fully on the, revel- on, on the grace of God that's bring, brought, brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Say, well, how do I be obedient? You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. How do I be obedient to God? You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. How am I obedient to God in all this? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? You need to seek a revelation of Jesus. Because in that revelation, you're going to find your answers. In that revelation, you're going to find your direction. And he's saying, when you're obedient, you fix your eyes fully upon the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it says, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. In other words, he's saying, if you don't keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, before long, the world will turn you back to your old behaviors and you will conform yourselves back to your old wicked behaviors. Anybody amen me on this? I don't know about you, but the times that I've been, since the Lord has delivered me, the times that I have been tempted the most to going back to my old evil, wicked behaviors and thinking is when all of a sudden I've gotten lazy with focusing on Jesus. When all of a sudden my Christianity becomes a chore and my Bible reading and my going to church and my worship just becomes a duty rather than a joy. And that's why some of y'all, you're living out of a bad attitude. You're living in a place of frustration and anger. And you're living in a place where you're questioning whether or not you're going to be able to get through with this. And you got maybe even dealing with some addictions and some sinful patterns of behavior that you got hiding in a closet now. And Jesus is only saying, he's saying, I'm not mad at you. You just need to see me again. You just need to get a fresh revelation of me. Because if you get a revelation of me, I would crush that thing in an instant. You wouldn't want it anymore. The more you fall in love with me, the less you're going to love the things of this world, the less you're going to conform to that. He says, you do it because of your ignorance. In other words, and he's saying you don't have head knowledge, he's saying you don't know me. Verse 15 and 16, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, holiness is an important thing. And like I said, in today's world, it gets, it gets confused sometimes, I think. But holy literally means, it means to be set apart or uncommon. And the Bible teaches that holiness does show up in your character. It shows up in your attitude. It shows up in your speech, the things that you say. It shows up in your actions. And he says, look, if you're having a revelation of Jesus and you're in a relationship with Jesus, you will not do holy things. You will be holy. You cannot be holy by adhering to rules because holiness is not legalism. Somebody amen me on that. Holiness is not legalism. Legalism deals in rules rather than relationship. And what legalism always leads to is we put standards on people that it's impossible for them to actually follow in their own strength. But legalism will either lead to two things. It will either lead to self-righteousness where I believe that I'm better than someone else and I stand in judgment over them every day because they don't live the way I live, they don't wear what I wear, and they don't do what I do, praise God. You know what I'm saying? It will lead to that. That's called self-righteousness. And that's that, to, to God, that is as ungodly as any other sin. 
But on the other hand, if you can't get to that place where you feel like you're doing well enough, it won't lead to self-righteousness. It will actually end up leading to rebellion because you realize I can't do this. And because you can't adhere to that standard, you end up going out. But see, holiness is beautiful because holiness is that thing where all of a sudden you realize I'm not that, but there's only one who is, and that's Jesus. And I'm going to come to him in my brokenness. And as I come to him, all of a sudden I forget about myself. He washes away my sins. He shows me who he really is. He fills me with himself. And I become so filled with the love that God has for me that I start to overflow with love for God and love for neighbor. And in that moment, what am I? I become holy. I start to become like God. He starts to naturally set me apart. And all of a sudden, guess what? I don't ha- you don't have to put no rules on me. You don't have to tell me to not do a lot of things because I'm not going to do them anyway. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of me. There's a big difference. And holiness is what we should pursue. It's what we should desire. And it comes in a revelation of Jesus. It comes through relationship with Jesus. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet with me if you would. just uh, bow our heads and pray together just like we said in the in the beginning of this service I I still feel like the Lord wants to minister to some people and I feel like the Lord's going to reveal himself in a in a new way to some people and um, and we just want to pray that for you so father I just pray right now in the name of Jesus maybe there's even somebody in here that you need to reveal yourself as savior to and they need to know God that you love them and that you're here to forgive them of their sin, to wash them and cleanse them in your blood and to set them free, Lord. And, and so we ask for that revelation in their lives. And God, for those that are sick or struggling with illness, Lord, you can reveal yourself as healer. Lord, for, for those that are just weak, and burdened and weary from the struggle, God, you can reveal yourself as their, their strength. So, Jesus, I pray right now that you begin to minister to each and every person. You'd speak to them and let them know, God, that you're there with them. And, Lord, we pray. We pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, Jesus, that we would see you in a greater way than we ever have in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. I just want you to continue. I want you to respond. We're going to sing one song in worship. But if you need prayer for anything, please uh, come forward. If you would just like to spend some time at this altar, come Come forward. Let's spend some time in prayer together and seek the Lord.